Welcome to the Teach the Geek podcast, where engineer and author Neil Thompson talks with STEM professionals about public speaking, a struggle for many of us. Whether you're a novice public speaker or a proficient one, you can always pick up tips on how to improve. Here's your host, Neil Thompson. Welcome to Teach the Geek interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I am the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Today, my guest is Raven Baxter. She is a college science teacher, a molecular scientist, and doctoral researcher. Not quite a lot of stuff. <laughs> she's also a public speaker, and she's eager to spread the message of inclusivity in STEM. I'm interested to find out more about what her work entails, what her doctoral research is on, and public speaking, of course. Welcome to Teach the Geek Interviews, Raven. Thanks, Neil, for having me. I appreciate it. So I did a little bit of research on you, Raven, and I saw that you studied biology in school. Where did yeah. that interest come from? Um, well, I've always loved science. Um, when I was a kid, I used to love watching the Weather Channel. And um, <laughs> Really? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so I'm a real geek. <laughs> um, I was right I loved meteorology, and um, I would read encyclopedias and things like that. And I eventually went to space camp, um, and then that's where I figured out. Oh, I'm afraid of heights. Definitely can't be an astronaut because <laughs> that would be my worst nightmare. Um, so I turned my sights back to Earth and um, fell in love with biology specifically like genetics um i'm bilingual and um genetics seemed like a third language to me so i was really interested in pursuing that and then i just really um kind of just took off from there i never really looked back what's the other language you speak spanish oh wow that's pretty cool i took a spanish class when i was in 10th grade and i never did spanish ever again after that i'm kind of regretting it now that i live in california <laughs> probably came in handy <laughs> sure it comes in handy in california yeah yeah for sure just even going to a jack in the box and ordering food i, I could do that real easy <laughs> so you know i mentioned in the in the intro that you get you teach so how did you get into teaching um well i've been teaching for a long time like even when i was in high school i taught sunday school um I was a Sunday school teacher and I found out that I really like teaching. Um, so I kind of just kept that in the back burner. I didn't really, when I was younger, I didn't really realize that if you like teaching, you didn't have to be like a K-12 teacher. So I pursued um, science and um, I eventually, when I got to grad school, I became a TA and then I realized, oh, like teaching college is really my speed. Um, I really like teaching at that level. Um, the students are often like way more mature and they want to be there. Most of them are paying to be there, unfortunately. <laughs> so, you know, usually they show really a lot of interest in the class and that's a really good, um, teaching in that environment is really nice because, um, students are usually very motivated. So yeah, yeah I really love teaching. And then, you know, I also mentioned in the intro that you're a molecular scientist. What exactly does that mean? Yes. So, um, <clears throat> as I said before, when I was talking about my love for genetics, uh, molecular science is really 
usually, usually people call it cell and molecular biology because it's the study of cells and everything that happens inside of cells to make cells work. So when you go um, beneath the cellular level, we call that the molecular level or the subcellular level. And it's the study of molecules, how, um, you know, proteins, uh, biomolecules, things like that. It's the study of those things, antibodies, um, those things. Oh, okay, yeah, that's, that's, that's sounds pretty interesting. So, you, I mean, you also mentioned, I also mentioned that you're, you're pursuing a PhD. What was your motivation to pursue a PhD? Okay, um, good question. So, um, I had a job in corporate science. I was a corporate drug discovery researcher. So, um, basically, big pharmaceutical companies who make all of the medicines that we take Today, um, they contract out small organizations to carry out parts of the research. So maybe their big project is, I want to create a drug that um, helps with this cancer. So they would be like, okay, but I want this business to figure out how this part of the drug works. And then you report back to us so we can like, you know, get on, get on with our big project. So I was a part of that little company that would make those little, little breakthroughs to help big companies. And, um, you know, you can have that kind of job with a master's degree or a bachelor's degree in biology. Um, but what I figured was that I didn't quite like the corporate environment. Um, and I really felt like I was being called to go back into education. Um, and to, do what I really want to do in the education space, you need a PhD. So I decided to go to school, not for a biology PhD, but for a science education PhD. And um, I think it's definitely a perfect fit for me. What about the corporate environment did you not like? Um, <clears throat> well, I will say that I think that science culture has a long way to go in, as far as creating welcoming and inclusive environments for minorities. And I really didn't feel um, like we had that where I was working. Um, not to say that they didn't make efforts, but I had a few experiences that really were uncomfortable. So I just kind of decided to leave <laughs> and um, really just give back to my community. And, um, uh, that's those experiences are what motivated me to kind of turn around and start changing science culture and creating those inclusive environments. Oh, okay. So when it comes to getting a PhD in science, commu uh, science education, what exactly does that entail? Um, well, I'm really fortunate to be in a um, interdisciplinary program, which means that you, if you have an idea, um, you can kind of just go anywhere you want with it as long as it relates to the core competencies of the program. So um, my PhD is in science education, but I'm actually studying, um, you didn't really touch on this yet, but I make science-themed rap music, and um, I released it on the internet, and it's been having global, there's been a global response to my music. Um, and I'm studying those responses. I've had the opportunity to interview 30 people and um, study their responses. And those responses are going to be the core components of my dissertation, which I will be finished with in the fall. Oh. So um, that's what I'm studying. It's called, uh, a, it's a study on science identity in adults. Interesting. 
what what prompted you to even put uh, I guess a science theme rap song or, or music together? Um, that's a good question. So, um, going back to my experiences as a corporate scientist, um, I really came away with a feeling of wow, you know, I experienced something that really made me uncomfortable. What would make me feel better? Like, what is something that would make me feel better because you know you can either sit with those feelings and then just be like wow that really sucked or you can kind of turn it around and flip it and make it a positive so um i ended up just kind of writing down how i felt and um i've been writing music for a long time since i was in high school and i've been making music so naturally my written thoughts turned into a song um i've been making beats since high school i, I made the beat for the song and it, it turned into a song. And um, the lyrics are all science themed. And they, if you listen closely and you kind of dissect um, the lyrics, which I'll be doing um, in a few weeks with one of my writing partners, um, you'll hear a narrative of my experience in STEM and kind of like words of empowerment and encouragement for other women in STEM. And um, so that was a product of my corporate experience. And I ended up making music videos to my songs and I made sure that I featured black women in my videos um, and really all types of women in my videos, just having a good time and showing people that they can really, even though science culture isn't, hasn't really been made for us, we still should feel comfortable being ourselves and expressing ourselves in our own individual ways. So I make sure that that's seen in my videos as well. So. Um, yeah, all of my work as far as science music has been a product of my experience in corporate. What do you hope to do with your PhD once, you're com once you've completed it? That's a really great question. I don't have an answer for that. And I am definitely uh, somebody who has kind of lived by the motto, everything happens for a reason. Um, and I found that I've had plans in the past and even greater things have happened. So I try not to plan too much and say, oh, this is what I'm gonna do. Um, but I definitely wanna continue the work that I'm doing right now in my um, science communication outreach and just creating communities where people can just feel welcome in science culture. Hmm. Every time you say, that's a good question, it makes me think that the questions that you didn't say, that's a good question for weren't very good questions. Oh, that's not true. <laughs> I think that's just my knee-jerk response. It's like, it's like, that was a good question, but that one before that, that was a stinker. <laughs> so response I, to anything you say, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you had said that you, know, you have these, you know, poor experiences in corporate America, and now you're doing a PhD. What would the environment need to be for you to return to corporate? That's really... I'm not going to say that. <laughs> it's a good question. It's a good question. You know, that's honestly, it's because it makes me think. And I, you know, I'm not sure if I have all of the answers to that question right now, but I definitely can say that one of the, one of the saddest things about my experience was that I just felt invisible. Uh, I worked 
my lab was mostly women, you know, contrary to popular belief that there are, there's a lack of women in science. Um, my work environment was almost 100% women at my level. Um, at the senior level, of course, you know, there were men who were the managers and things like that, which is, that's a whole other conversation. But, um, you know, I was in an office full of women and we all have that one thing in common, but still, I was the only black person in the entire building besides the janitor and the security guard. Um, and mm. I was, yeah, and I was yeah. the scientist. And, um, you know, it was, it just said a lot to me because every day I would walk in the office and the janitor, you know, and the security guard would acknowledge me. They would be so proud. They were so proud that I was there. Um, and I would walk into my office and no one would talk to me. Like I was invisible to them. And I would try to make efforts to make friends. Like I would bring in snacks. I would, you know, I'm a really pleasant person to talk to. I love to have fun. No one really cared to make bonds with me unless it was directly related to our research. You know, if we were on the same team working on a project and they had to communicate with me, um, the communication was there. But otherwise, if it was like, hey, let's grab some lunch or, you know, how's your day going or something like that, it wasn't there. And that's, you know, feeling um, accepted, having a sense of belonging is a basic human need. And that's something that a lot of people don't get, especially in the STEM workforce, when you're the only um, Black person there. Um, uh, it's really common for you to just be, like, off to the side, an afterthought. Um, there, you know, there was a ton of things that happened. You know, the list could go on and on. But I think what really needs to happen is a genuine inclusion effort, like training. If if there is really a care uh, about getting minorities into STEM and keeping them, retaining them in the STEM field, I think that these companies really have to look at training for inclusivity and diversity, um, implicit bias training, things like that need to be had like from the get-go. <laughs> hmm. You know, and, just, li just listening to your, your experience and the, the idea of, of not or of, of being invisible and people not really, you know, bringing in snacks and people not, you know, acknowledging it or, or asking you to lunch. Is that the type of, of thing that I guess that would, <clears throat> that would have helped in you staying in corporate America or just, be, you know, people just being nicer to you and just, you know, extending a, an olive branch, I guess? Honestly, yeah. And you have to think about when, when you take a job like that, no one really wants to leave like that was a career move for me i didn't plan on leaving um that company you know the company was very promising um i was working hard but when you think about somewhere you want to be long term um you really have to make sure that you're in a place where you're gonna be happy because scientists work long hours um we are we work in very intimate close settings on teams and when you encounter loneliness like that on a daily basis it can be very toxic so i had to make the decision um you know i can't change people um if i'm invisible to you then i'm just invisible right um but that that experience really motivated me to just kind of take a do a 180 and turn around and make it better for the next generation and start cultivating these 
communities where people can get the skills they need to feel um, to survive that kind of environment. Well, I know you'd mentioned you know, potential training that, that people could go to to, to foster this uh, a culture of belonging. What would, in your opinion, what would this training need to encompass so that someone like you would have been, you know, felt more welcome at, uh, at the companies you were at? Well, I've had... I'm That's under, a good question. Yes, and you said... <laughs> I, I was waiting for it, and you didn't say it this time. <laughs> That's great questions. That's great. There you go. <laughs> good. Um, I think I am not experienced enough and well-versed enough in, like, diversity trainings to answer this question fully, but I have had implicit bias training which was very eye-opening for not only myself, but everyone else in the room. And it really helped everyone to just understand that everyone has a bias. I have a bias, you have a bias. Everyone has preconceived notions of every single thing, you know, that they may have encountered before. So <clears throat> I think that that's a good place to start from my knowledge base. I'm sure that there's other exercises, other trainings that we can have, but I feel like that must be a mandatory part of the onboarding process for any scientist. Implicit bias training, um, whatever other types of trainings there are, I think it has to be a part of the onboarding process. And I think that just as we have, um, just as we have, uh, requirements for academics to submit diversity statements with their applications for positions, we should start having diversity statements for more types of positions, especially in STEM, where we see a huge discrepancy, you know, in representation. We want to make sure we're hiring people who understand uh, or have some sort of commitment to diversity, some sort of respect for diversity initiatives, and not just people who are completely unaware of uh, the need for diversity. Hmm. Yeah, I'd, be, I'd be curious to find out what that diversity statement would say. <laughs> yeah, I want to read them. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you know, I also mentioned that you do a lot of, of, of speaking. Have you always been effective in public speaking? And if not, what have you done to get better at it? Hmm. I think I've always been a good speaker. I do recall a time when I was a nervous speaker, and that was really in my youth before I had done much speaking. And uh, I think what makes me a good public speaker is just being very human and understanding that whoever I'm speaking to is most likely a human, you know, because I'm not Dr. Doolittle. Um, can't talk to animals. Um, <laughs> so, once you kind of just remember we're all human and I'm just up here talking to a bunch of other humans about whatever I'm thinking about, it just becomes a more relaxed experience. And also I like to, this is something I tell my students to just stop worrying about titles. Um, a lot of the students that I taught and advised have, uh, they're very intimidated talking to professors, me, uh, talking to people in authority, and I have to just remind them, 
circle of life. Like one day you're probably going to be a professor, you know, and I'm going to be in a nursing home and like, you know, and then there's going to be somebody who's afraid to talk to you. You have to understand that like the only difference between me and you is a, a few years and a couple degrees and that's it. And you're going to, you might get there one day. And even if you don't, we're still both human. So um, no matter who you're talking to in front of, like just being very humble and human has, I think that's made me a good public speaker. You know, that's the, that's excellent advice that you offer Raven about not being scared to speak to people just based on their title or their position. And mm -hmm. I, I, I firmly believe that, you know, just in the black community in general, I'll speak on that because I, I know it well because, you know, I think for obvious reasons, but, you know, speaking, speaking in, in that community in general, I think that's a lot of our issues a lot of times is we feel intimidated speaking to people that are in these positions and and you can't it's really difficult to move ahead when you don't get when you don't speak to those people because oftentimes they know things that could very well benefit us but if we don't speak to them when we don't get that knowledge absolutely that is so true yeah so when, when it comes to the, the speaking that you do what's the topics that you typically speak on okay um so i have four speaking topics and uh, one of my speaking topics is about creating culturally responsive classrooms or learning environments, I should say. Um, another one of my speaking topics is on my journey. Um, I dropped out of college at 16, or 17 rather, and then I got my PhD at 26. So, you know, within those 10 years, I came a long way and I talk about my journey, finding resiliency in my, um, STEM career, and uh, I also talk about my um, research in science identity and why representation of Black women in STEM is is um, in impactful for everyone. And um, I also give talks on how to incorporate hip hop pedagogy in the classroom. When you, I know from that first topic, you mentioned creating culturally responsive classrooms. What exactly does that mean, culturally responsive? So culturally responsive um, comes from culturally relevant pedagogy, which was, um, it's basically bringing the classroom into the culture versus bringing the culture into the classroom. So being super immerse, immersive about um, <clears throat> understanding students' cultural backgrounds and not making it, not making it a piece of a puzzle, but making it the whole puzzle itself. Like everything that's done in the classroom is relevant to, um, really personalized to the demographic that you're teaching. Um, and I strongly believe that that's an effective way to teach, and I use that in my teaching practices. Interesting. Oh, what what exactly would that look like? Just can you provide perhaps an example. Sure. Um, so the way that I do it. Um, so as a professor, I from day one I establish like a family feel for my classroom. A lot of people come away from my class feeling like we're family after the semester's over and they're sad to leave. It's like one of those things, like you've been at camp and you meet all these friends. Um, but the reason why I do that is because I want, I want 
people to treat each other like their family. I want everyone to try hard to learn about each other. So on the first day, I ask, even if it's a hundred people in my class, I ask each and every single one person in the classroom to share something about themselves. And we have like a short dialogue, you know, we're, and I, it's for the whole class to hear. Someone can say, hey, you know, my name's Ben and I'm from uh, California. I have a mom. Um, I like to play hockey. And like, I'll try to pick one thing that each person says and find a relationship with them. So Ben likes hockey. Oh, I'm from Buffalo. We, we have a hockey team, the Buffalo Sabres. Like, how, how's hockey in California? You know, stuff like that. And you'd be so surprised how far that goes with students. Um, just little things like that. And then remembering, I try to take notes. Um, remembering throughout the semester, hey, Ben likes hockey. You're like, you know, relating things back to the student, to whatever culture they identify with, and also leaving room for students to continuously identify themselves throughout the, the course of the semester. Um, and customizing my teaching, you know, I never teach the same course um, any semester. I customize every lecture to whatever students are in the classroom. So, um, you know, if I'm talking about historical figures, I try to pull historical figures that the students will identify with based on what they shared. Or um, when we're talking about health issues, uh, if like I've had a class where I had a ton of like Latino students, Latinos have a high um, rate of obesity and diabetes. You know, I try to relate statistics that they can that they can um, relate to and understand. And um, it just goes a long way. That's, so that's what culturally relevant teaching can look like, but there's so many examples um, of that. Wow. It sounds like in your classroom, you're developing the environment that you wish had existed at the company that you worked at. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it, makes, it makes a difference. Like, students will always tell me I've never had anybody who really cared about me, you know, um, science lectures can be really dry and um, not a lot of people take the time to go the extra mile and make students feel included. It's so easy to just get up and, and just regurgitate information uh, and get your money and go home. It's so easy to do that. And um, it just takes somebody who really cares to, to really make a, a meaningful experience for a student. Well, you know what, I, if the students haven't said it, I commend you for going that extra mile in, in trying to make science more palatable to the, or interesting to the students that, that you teach. Thank you, I appreciate that. So when it comes to the engagements or the speaking that you do, do you have a process for putting your presentations together? And if so, what is it? Um, well, I like to make an outline and I, but before I make the outline, I like to do an analysis of what do I really want them to go home and think about um, after the talk is over? And what are the takeaways? Like, are we gonna make an action plan? Um, are we gonna make a craft? Are we gonna do something hands-on? What is going to be the takeaway? Are they gonna have um, homework to do? Are we gonna see each other again? Things like that. So I definitely try to outline the product of the talk um, and then I make the outline what is the story that I want to tell or what are the skills that I want to teach and make sure that all of those 
um, points are hit throughout the talk. And always give um, opportunities for people to ask questions and engage in dialogue. Because again, it's really easy to just get up there and bark at people and get your money and go home. But uh, creating that community is really important. Yeah, for sure. So this has all been really interesting. And I, I know I, I said this would be 30 minutes or less, so I really want to be mindful of your time. Is there anything else that you'd like to add about things that you're working on? Oh, um, anything else that I'm working on? I, well, yes. So I am currently hosting a talk show, science talk show. It's called the Stembassy. Stembassy, like embassy. Okay. And every Sunday at 6 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, I host three other scientists and we talk about current events in STEM. We also talk about topics that these scientists are passionate about. And we play games, we have trivia, and we give prizes to the audience members who are tuning in to the live stream. And we have so much fun, we laugh, um, you know, we think, we come up with solutions, we take action, and I really enjoy it. So that's the Stembassy, you can follow Stembassy on Instagram, um, or you can follow me, I'm Raven the Science Maven on Instagram, and tune in. Wonderful. So those are the best op- those are the best avenues to get in touch with you the, the inst- on Instagram? Yes, or you could go to my website, um, scimaven.com, S-C-I-M-A-V-E-N.com. I'm also on Facebook, Raven the Science Maven. I'm on Twitter, I'm not as active on Twitter, uh, but I'm working on it. It's Raven Sci Maven on Twitter. And that'd be it. Wonderful. Well, everyone, that marks the end of another episode of Teach the Geek Interviews. My name is Neil Thompson. I am the founder of Teach the Geek. It's an online platform for science and engineering professionals. The first offering of the platform is a public speaking course called Teach the Geek to Speak. To learn more about it, you can go to teachthegeek.com. Again, that's teachthegeek.com. Until next time, take care. Thanks, Raven.